1: and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Life is changing in Australia. Because the pub is shut. Sucked in, fellas. I actually find it gobsmacking. I will call it a personal nightmare. Tell the Prime Minister to go and get... it. It is changing all around the world. I accept your nomination. The authority is total, and I rejected that approach. It's all about
0: acknowledging how far we've come. He's all tip and no iceberg.
1: Like a really
0: scary wooden puppet. He was drunk. That's not true. Not now. Not ever. You're a classic space
1: invader. A social climbing sycophant. You should be ashamed of yourselves.
0: Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy. Very good. <laughs>
1: G'day, Mark Kenny here with Democracy Sausage, the weekly podcast on politics and policy from the ANU's Australian Studies Institute, the School of Politics and International Relations and the wonderful Crawford School of Public Policy. Well, we've had the budget, albeit a pretty strange one at that, and we're well on the way now with a vaccine rollout. So there's a sense, notwithstanding the budget assumption of a closed international border until this time next year, there's a sense of recovery, of returning to normal. But even if that turns out to be correct and there are no further large setbacks, is it good enough or should we be disappointed that our political representatives have failed to seize the opportunity of a crisis like this to build back better, not just in the economy but perhaps in the political economy, in the society and, and in our political system? My guest this week has been with us a few times before, he's always good value, Professor Mark Evans from the University of Canberra, he's a political scientist and the director of the Democracy 2025 project based at the Museum of Australian Democracy at Old Parliament House. Mark, welcome back I want to talk to you about Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer, or should I say Sir Keir Starmer, <laughs> which we can get to in a little bit. But first, am I right in saying that, uh, apropos what I just said in the introduction there, you feel a bit angry or disappointed uh, about really the sort of lack of ambition in, in really using this pandemic period, this crisis, to, to sort of reset some aspects of the way we do our governing.
0: Yes well I I guess that lots of people were expecting that the the economic and social dislocation that would emerge from COVID-19 would be the big disruptive event in in Australian politics that the global financial crisis was for many other democracies around the world and well as you know i've i've written on this topic for a, for a while now since i've been in australia but in my view there's been kind of a a culture of complacency mm. over the last two decades that's characterized both labor and coalition governments um a sense of policy limbo on on the big public policy problems of our of our time and and we know that the the academic literature tells tends to tell us that actually you're only going to shake people out of that complacency if they're experiencing good times economically, if there is some type of disruptive hmm. event. We kind of uh, looked at maybe digital transformation was going to be that event a couple of years ago. And certainly it's true to say that the Australian Public Service has responded quite positively to to the, the reform potential, particularly in the area of service provision that digital technology affords. Mm. Um, but certainly COVID-19, as we sit here at the moment, hasn't had that disruptive impact, although there have been some areas of, of progress. But, um, for example, um, emergency relief is an area where I've been working for the last um, four months And there was a big expectation amongst providers that with the end of um, JobKeeper, there would be um, a surge for the need for um, emergency relief. And as we sit here, that's not happened. Um, So actually, you're going to have a lot of providers that are going to have to give money back to government in expectation of um, of a relief surge. But that's a good thing, isn't it? It is a good thing. So obviously this is where the big moral dilemma mm. um, for me personally comes in because you don't want to w-
1: wish misery <laughs> no. on on anybody. So, um, you, so know, you, don't that- want, you don't want to w- wish misery but at the same time, as you said, in sort of good economic times like normal times outside of the, the pandemic, for example, there's no great – Impetus for change. You know, people tend to coast along if they're if they're economically comfortable, which broadly they are. I mean, let, let us both go on the record and acknowledge that there are plenty of people in this community. Who are not as comfortable, and there are of mm. course one hundred and sixty thousand australians who are who are homeless at least mm. uh, and and all kinds of economic stresses and other mm. domestic problems so uh, le- you know make making sure that that is acknowledged, but broadly speaking, when things are going, well, you don't have any great impetus for change, whereas in this circumstance, you would think there might be because everything's sort of been thrown up in the air by the pandemic. And the fact that there isn't that level of dislocation for those emergency services, those relief services you're talking about, suggests that the assistances that the government has dialed up for COVID, for the pandemic, JobKeeper being the, you know by far the most expensive of all of them, they've largely kind of done their job.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this has been a period of... Of effective governance, and uh, um, and, th- and that's translated in in terms of, as you know, the doubling of of um, trust in in people in in government that we've experienced over the last year, which mm. has been a, um, an, an incredible transformation. Although, having said that, there is an ABC tracker poll um, that suggests movement away um, from the coalition over the last um, three months as a consequence of of certain of the. Um, the scandals. But we but we have had and perhaps, and perhaps
1: the and perhaps the vaccine the vaccine, uh, the vaccine rollout, rollout. Or stroll out as some people are calling yeah, it. Yeah.
0: I, I I guess I'm a little bit more skeptical about that because um, um because it's not the vaccine has not been a pressing issue um I think for the majority of Australians. Why? Well because we've not seen lots of people dying around us Mm. you know uh, i mean my dad lives in 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 clitheroe in lancashire and basically within a 50 mile radius of where he lives over fifty thousand people have died six members of my family have had covid 19 thank god they've all they've all survived that but if that's your lived experience then the vaccine is a is an imperative and and one of the reasons why Boris Johnson has had this this comeback is because, you know, as we sit here today, fifty six million Brits have had their first jab, um, and the vaccine rollout is viewed to be a tremendous success, despite um, the horror governance that had <laughs> had preceded it in well, the that, UK. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's right. Because that seems to be the sort of strange uh, inverse relationship here that's happened. The countries. I mean, whether this is by accident or, or, or sort of causally related, I guess, you know, we can debate. But the countries that really buggered up their, their response to the pandemic, that, that, that went through periods of denial and, and had inconsistent policy and failed to close borders and take it seriously and didn't set up their health systems correctly and all that, and I'm principally thinking of countries, developed countries like the US and the UK, have in the second phase in the in the vaccine phase have really performed very well now there may be as i say a sort of a causal relationship with that which which you're you're talking about there as well you know when mm. you've had vast suffering many many thousands of deaths uh, that is going to sharpen your resolve to get the vaccine and get mm. that program working urgently and that's what those two countries have done and others as well mm. um so maybe that is the you know maybe that explains the inverse relationship. I don't know that it fully explains It doesn't fully
0: explain it because of course the other major um comparison between Australia and the UK is that um UK airports are are international hubs. Um London is the center of international finance. Yeah. Um the internationalization um dimension of this um, is critical to the British economy, um, particularly post-Brexit. And, you know, one of the benefits of living in Australia um, and the weaknesses for many of us is that we are out on the limb geographically. You yeah. know? So as soon as we um, closed, took that um, decision to close our international borders really quickly, which was a fantastic decision, we were going to be okay. And this is interesting, actually, because I was reading um, the other day, um, there was a paper by the Behavioural Insights Unit um, in the UK that had basically said to, to Boris Johnson, look, if you go da- go for a quick lockdown of the border, don't think that you're going to get the, the behavioural change that you think you'll get from, from British people. Brexit has demonstrated um, that they're not predictable. Right, and apparently that delayed the decision as well.
1: Yeah, I heard some talk about this going back to mm. the early part of 2020 as well. That that um, uh, even the medical, the, the senior medical authorities, the equivalent of uh, you know the Brendan Murphy's and people mm. like that that we have in this country, they had made an assumption. This is right at the very start of the pandemic. They made a, a, worked on 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 an assumption that. Um, that a lockdown of the kind that the Chinese had effected in Wuhan mm. was just not viable. It was just not tenable within a mm. democratic society. That Britons wouldn't do it, and that therefore it wasn't within their armory. And they mm. were quite surprised when lockdowns in other places outside of you know authoritarian states started to work. Mm. And uh, you know, so so in a sense, th- th- they didn't even. Look at what would have been the most effective uh, measure of controlling the pandemic as it really began to gallop, which is to basically shut down, uh, shut down social interaction, get people to stay in their homes and social distance. Yeah, that's right. So,
0: so the irony was that they that they followed the evidence, but they followed the evidence from behavioural yeah. um, science rather than the um, the evidence from the epidemiologists. Yeah. Which is, which yeah. is interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and of course, subsequently, we, we, we've still seen a big contestation around um, around the evidence, as we know, as you'll, as you'll always get. And evidence is always value driven. We know yeah. that. Yeah. Um, but by and large, the evidence that the Australian Commonwealth government has followed has been, um, it has been risk averse. There's no doubt about that. But as we sit here, the economic impacts have not been disastrous
1: and that risk aversion is is interesting mm. because it's been what you might say at least in in prospect that is in thinking forward before you've done it you would call mm. it risk averse in a in an economic sense it turns out not to be risk averse in a political sense. or social sense yeah governments, the, the tougher governments have been, the more resolve they have been accredited with by voters. So, you know, I, I always joked through that uh, period during the, the Queensland state election mm. last year that, you know, obviously Scott Morrison was on Anastasia Palaszczuk's campaign team because every time he went to Queensland or he attacked the, the Premier for mm. keeping the state's border shut, mm. it was adding Votes to her mm. column. Queenslanders were saying she's standing up to Canberra. She's standing up to this mm. external pressure mm. to let people with infection into this state, and mm. she's she's on our side. You know that that was yeah. The politics and, became more yeah, local, didn't and, they? And Exactly, and then we saw the same thing in WA. Of course, in mm. fact, we've seen five. I, I've listeners to this podcast. I know I keep quoting this, but there've been five. Elections in the COVID area in Australia now, but to mm. the two territories and three states: WA, Tasmania, and mm. Queensland. And they've in, in all five cases the incumbents have been re-elected. Yeah, and in WA, of course, the the opposition, the Liberal opposition, officially ceased to exist. Mm. It was so decimated. Mm. Uh, and 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 you would probably say Mark McGowan, the WA Premier, was of all of those state territory leaders the most overtly parochial, the most you know, within the context of the nation, the the most sort of uh, isolationist almost, you know. um,
0: Yeah, because he's looking east.
1: Xenophobic even. Yes. Yeah. Well, and and he did make that point. He is looking east and he did Mm. make that point. Even when he had the border shut, it Mm. didn't, do You were just touching on this a second ago. It didn't do his state economically any great harm. At least, like you take about tourism, for example. He pointed out that more West Australians travel east for their holidays yeah. than Australians travel west into WA. Therefore, if West Australians spent their tourism dollars in WA, they actually wind up with more money, not less. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> That's extraordinary. Yeah.
0: But, you know, we do forget that we, we, that we live on a continent.
1: Yeah. You know? Um, Good point. Yeah. So
0: regional identity, politics, yeah. um, and regional economic yeah. issues um, are really, really important. Yeah. And we often forget that.
1: That's right. And the sheer in distance involved means yeah. that there is a lot of different territory. You can actually, mm. for example, have quite a lot of tourism within the state like w- uh, WA. Look at the size of it. I mean, it's mm. bigger than most countries in the world.
0: Yeah. No, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so it is really interesting the way in which um, the blend of politics changes across um, Australia from state to state, from territory mm. um, to territory, and by and large, the the big governance decisions up until the the vaccine rollout have 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 been really good. And um, and look, it's quite interesting that um, that the that the team. Um, involved in directing the vaccine rollout um, has been changed now. Um, so clearly, the government is is, is worried about the um, the potential electoral deficit that yeah. could be caused by yeah. by, by that. And, so they're, con- and
1: they're saved, funnily enough, the government that is is saved, funnily enough, in in the severity of that negative reaction mm. by the same thing you referred to before, which is that we don't have the virus in the community here, mm. and so it you know people can see that there's been a technical underperformance and i don't mean to understate that but i mean compared even to what the prime minister said there was going to be um what was it 3 million by the end of march and yeah. uh, or 4 million or something i i forget the numbers now but it was um you know there was a very ambitious timeline for mm. for the uh, vaccination program within the context of a fairly tardy fairly slow acquisition program in the second mm. half of last year, I thought. I mean, mm. other countries were signing deals with with Pfizer and Moderna and Novavax and others, and we were we were relatively insouciant about that, it seemed to me. Uh, and, uh, you know, the government kept telling us there's a portfolio approach. We, 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 you know, we've got our, mm. all these different uh, vaccines and that we're going to be protected by that. Turned out that portfolio was largely AstraZeneca and UQ, and UQ, of course, didn't materialise and AstraZeneca has since had uh, the sorts of problems that have meant that it needs to now be restricted largely to over 50s. Uh, So there have been some problems in that regard. But the political sort of downside for the government, as some of the polls are showing, has been relatively muted. Mm -hmm. And it's probably a function of the fact that, as you say, the virus just isn't raging here and we don't have that level of urgency
0: yeah yeah I think that's certainly true um yeah the immediacy of the threat um isn't there so so people are less worried about it i mean um, I guess the question is really, are there any signs of of change emerging within communities across Australia, and there are a few little kind of signals that are interesting look at to look at so for example, since two thousand and nineteen we've seen historic registration of of new political parties in Australia, which is interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. And then this year, for the first time, we had uh, a national conference of independence and the creation of an umbrella movement called um, Independence Can. And the the key person behind that is Cathy McGowan, who... Um, as you know, um, led the voice for Indi hmm. um, movement, and they've been franchising their almost franchising their yeah. approach.
1: Um, yeah, she's written a book about it, and I think even her sister's got a, a book as well. And uh, that's right, yeah. yeah.
0: Um, and th- they've been strategically targeting particular constituencies on the premise that if they can get um, twenty independents up. They can they can hold the balance of power and they can they can force through some they could some I mean that change
1: that would be a reshaping of Australian politics mm. right, right there wouldn't it and it wouldn't be being delivered from from our political representatives it would be delivered from voters who are as we know tending to walk away from and this is a long term trend but walking away from the the major parties if if we compare it to the sorts of uh, loyalties that might have existed say thirty or fifty years ago.
0: Absolutely. So the so the dealignment trend is in line with this. Mm. Um you could say the localism trend is in line with this as well. Yeah. Um potentially. I mean there are a number of um cabinet ministers with seats in WA who must be um worried yeah. um yeah. about that. Um and then ironically, there's obviously international trends as well. That um in most of the large democracies um there are big movements for for reform so again in those countries that have felt the threat um, more directly you are seeing the emergence of devices like citizens assemblies to um to deliberate on on climate change but linking um climate action to um post covid recovery and we've seen those assemblies created in France and Germany obviously biden has um has uh um, triggered a, a a major process of public engagement around climate action as well, mm-hmm. and um, the same in Britain. But ironically, um, and maybe that this will be part of our discussion later on. You know, the Conservatives under Johnson have been very progressive on climate action. Yeah, so yeah. that's been part of the problem for for Starmer's Labour is that they've kind of steal stolen the sort of um, the green space. Mm. Um so and that's pre- that's proving a, a problem for for Keir Starmer. We,
1: we, we, we will come back to that because that is an interesting uh, you know mm. very contrasting difference with the layout of that problem in in Australia the way the political parties are addressing it. Uh, but there's also some so, so many other issues you've raised there and uh, and we'll come to them as well. I'd like mm. to also talk about this for example this notion of citizens assemblies and mm. and where we're up to with that. Let's mm. take a quick break and we'll go straight to that.
0: Or find us at policyforum.net
1: slash podcasts. Welcome back. Now, Mark Evans, we were talking just before the break about a number of things, but Citizens Assemblies as you mentioned. You and I uh, penned a piece, I reckon it was about a year ago, a quite optimistic piece, I think it's fair to say. Um, uh, talking about this moment, the you know, the, the the onset of the pandemic and the changes that were happening. And I think we were um, you know, self-consciously uh being optimistic about how how voters could look at how citizens really could look at um, the reset this this crisis offered and what might come from it was it a chance for some democratic renewal? So I just thought we might look at that for a moment uh, because that goes to the sort of disappointment with which we you know began this this podcast uh, today, uh, but also as you say some of the. Other more positive developments that have happened in some of those other countries. Mm-hmm. Um, so we haven't seen much really, have we? I mean, you, you, you mentioned the independence movement, the independence can and, and that tendency, that de tendency, but we haven't seen much in the way of, um, uh, you know, kind of any real momentum for change from our major political parties in the way we do our democracy, at least not as a function of this pandemic.
0: No, absolutely. And, uh, you know, and one thing that Albanese and Starmer have have shared um, is the view that they should engage in um, a constructive opposition approach, rather than um, um, articulating uh, a new vision um, in contrast to the the incumbent government in in both countries.
1: Yeah, that, and that's that's that's. A kind of a trap, but it's also needed. It's it's the sense that we all face this exogenous threat, the the virus in this case, and the economic mayhem that can be caused. Voters want their politicians to stop bickering and get Mm. into problem solving. We've seen that. That accounts for uh, the spike in trust that you referred to Mm. earlier. But it's also great for incumbents, isn't it? Yes, yeah, brilliant yeah. for
0: incumbents because it means that the opposition leaders really can't make any sort of cut through, mm. um, unless there's some kind of um, crisis or, or um, but but even but even there, um, I mean, look, maybe it is that the scandals that have been experienced in recent times are kind of the preserve of the chattering classes, and that most Australians aren't really bothered about them. Um, I personally would hope that that's not the case.
1: You're talking about the scandals involving the treatment of women, allegations yeah. of sexual abuse, uh, crimes, and 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 underrepresentation of women. All of those stories that have sort of dominated the first part of this year in political. Yeah,
0: terms. and and then and also sports rorts,
1: um Well, sports rorts pretty much got obliterated by the pandemic, didn't it? This start did. of 2020. I mean, that was kind of at fever pitch as an issue, and then the pandemic occurred, and really yeah. it just didn't rate. So
0: we've really seen sort of a consistent um, number of integrity challenges to mm. this to this government, mm. and they basically had a Teflon factor. You know, they they have been able to evade any real scrutiny in relation to these issues because what we do know, there's no doubt about that. I mean, intuitively you would know that where there's sports rorts in the system, there's other rorting in the system. Yeah. Right, and and uh, and obviously that's probably the major reason why uh, the pro um, the process of ICAC reform has kind of been kicked into the long grass or or has slowed considerably, yeah. because of worries about what they might might find um, elsewhere. Now, I have to say that this isn't peculiar to a co- uh, coalition government. Um, we know that similar things have happened under under Labour government. So when I'm talking about the integrity problems, it's a, it's a systems problem. It's not it, a problem peculiar to, to a political party.
1: Absolutely. I mean, if you don't have uh, proper accountability mechanisms, proper mm. mechanisms for policing these things and mm. for monitoring them, then you will eventually have, you know, sort of encultured – behavior that is unacceptable mm. that we don't want that is not meant to meant to occur and the politicization of public monies in, you know these minor grants programs for example which might be minor in some of the grants but pretty major in terms of the aggregate money they seem inevitable if you don't have proper guardrails around them and mm. that's that's really the lesson here it's not just about whether the coalition is you know sort of uniquely guilty it isn't
0: mm. absolutely you know, so, so when we saw those types of developments um, a year ago, obviously there seemed to be the space there for some sort of renewal project, democratic renewal project. But obviously the, the key issue is that um, most people would agree that in, that in times of crisis, you expect governance to, to be more top-down because you're engaged in crisis mm. management mm. and you need to, in many ways, have a command and control approach to the marshalling of resources yeah. in response to crisis. But the intuition was that as soon as we started to move towards a more recovery stage, that there would be a need for a more inclusive politics because there's greater contestation over the resources. Um, And it's going to be very, very difficult to maintain um, um, uh, kind of a national project around recovery unless there's um, more inclusive engagement. Right. And, and again, we saw that perhaps the National Cabinet could play that role um, if the National Cabinet became um, an instrument for more political inclusion, right? So obviously the key critique of COAG was that it was a creature of the Prime Minister, it was top-down. But actually, ironically, it did have um, an institutional architecture of committees that actually brought... Um, public servants across the country together to, do, to engage in some collaborative problem solving. And in some areas, like Closing the Gap, for example, but probably more in, ca- more in the case of education reform, um, it was through COAG that the, the, the major policy strides have been made, in my view, over the last two decades.
1: Well, that's true, although having been pretty close to that process in a reporting sense mm. for a long time. Uh, I think it's also true to say that yes, it had the architecture, but the architecture was 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 somewhat, uh, you know, it was it was sort of scar architecture. It was it was you know there was a lot of there was a lot of built up process around everything to the point where it was things were slow. Yeah, that's that's certainly uh, true. And and if you compare, I've thought about this a bit because if you, I thought when when Morrison announced the national cabinet, I mm-hmm. thought, well, what's different about this? Is it just a change of name? And I think the two key differences, um, are that it's, it's the leaders without officials, largely speaking, the national cabinet, but it's also very, very focused. In the case of the national cabinet so far, it's been focused largely on the pandemic. So having one key area of focus Mm. gives it much more, much greater chance to one, you know, to have the development of expertise, but also to be, you know, very sort of results driven. Whereas Coag became very process driven, yes, um, you know, and as you say, it was it would be looking at correctional service, it'd be looking at roads regulations, it'd be looking yeah. at, um, you know, education, health, so many other different areas closing the gap, yeah. uh, and 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 because of that breadth of workload, would have necessarily working committees that are looking at that officials operating, mm. uh, you know, at at official to official level and so forth. It all, all sort of makes sense. Mm. Like, yeah, look, I I, I get that, really and, and I that, and I agree
0: with that, and and I cannot hear in praise of Coag. <laughs> um, but what I'm saying is that um, the national cabinet initially we thought it was going to be a more collaborative. Uh, decision making venue and at the beginning it looked as if that was going to be the case.
1: Yeah, and there was a fair um, bit of it actually. Yeah. When you think I mean if you think about hotel quarantine for example, mm. it was the state's essentially shouldering what the constitution sets out as a mm. as a federal responsibility, not necessarily mm. exclusively but certainly as a federal responsibility. But it was the states who shouldered the burden of running quarantine mm. in their states through the hotel quarantine system. We know the political cost that, mm. you know, and 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 the you know the 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 health cost that that had in mm. um, and economic cost that had in Victoria. But but nonetheless, you yeah. Know, that-
0: look, and I, I look, I was excited that this could potentially be um be a force for power sharing. You know, mm. um, because my view is that one of the major Um, issues that the Australian Federation confronts is that the executive has become increasingly powerful. I mean, we know that in public expenditure terms, it's the second most centralised federal system in the world to Belgium. Um, Now it accounts, I mean, this was before COVID it accounted for 48% of public expenditure. But post-COVID, it must be way over that, mm. way over that. So as we know, money talks in terms of the distribution of, of, of power. Um, so I was excited by the idea that the National Cabinet could become a, a building block for um, a more devolved federation um, and the greater sharing of power where um, – premiers and chief ministers would have the ability to basically um, um develop new ideas about policy because actually you know when when we when we make the observation uh, we really haven't seen uh, much policy change emerging from um, commonwealth governments over the last two decades by and large that's I think that's true empirically, but we've seen a lot more happening at the state and territory level in terms of, particularly in terms of, you know, social inclusion, um, particularly in terms of um, supporting small and family-sized businesses.
1: Um, Yeah, social inclusion is a really interesting one. um, and, And climate change too. I mean, all the states, for example, have net zero by 2050 targets. Yeah, uh, the Commonwealth doesn't, but the states do, and yeah, w- almost and raises the question: Would does it matter as much that the Commonwealth doesn't if the states all do?
0: Yeah, but as we know, there's been an uneven pattern in terms of learning across a- yeah. across the states as well. So obviously, there's there have been some pioneers, but there are other states that that have not made the same the same progress. Um, but I think that the, you know the insight, which is we need to use the 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 innovation and new thinking that's emerging through our states and territories in our national politics and our national decision-making more effectively. Um, I mean, in my view, the essentially, the genius of a federation should be about policy learning because it gives us the ability to try things in different places mm. and to learn the lessons. Yeah. And the problem, I think, is that we've not done enough of that over the last two decades.
1: Well, hasn't that, and partly that's been because, I mean, of political timidity, and we can talk about that, but but also isn't it true to say that there is a, there has been this assumption, this kind of underlying assumption that uniformity is good, that that, that variation between jurisdictions on laws is a sort of an economically bad thing, you know? Uh, the old yeah, and sort that's of weird because internationally there's been the like-
0: drift towards subsidiarity, you know? So yeah. elsewhere the view is um, localism is important, difference is important, and actually um, the key to being competitive competitive in the global economy is, is having um, economic plans that make sense in the
1: context of, Um, the regional to the global where whereas the argument has actually been often that if you're a business in australia you have some sort of challenge dealing with regular and particularly if you're an export business you have some sort of difficulties inevitable ones dealing with you know foreign markets and regulations but Mm. you shouldn't have to have those sorts of problems internally you know you should have the same regulations applying Mm. to your whole processes wherever they happen to be located in australia that's you know, it's been a pretty predominant business argument for a long time. Yeah,
0: but um, but again, if you look at China, you know, there's this presumption that this China has this command and control economy, um, but the but the engine rooms of economic growth in China have been through the special economic yeah. action zones. Yeah, it's been a devolved economic project around those industries that the central government has chosen as the winners in the economy or the yeah. potential winners into the, into the future. So, you know, there are some lessons here to be yeah, drawn yeah, yeah. Um, from, from, yeah, there are some lessons to be drawn from. from, yeah, from and some, from and the, some to from,
1: be perhaps not drawn. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's, uh, let's talk about, you know, something you mentioned before as well, which brings us neatly to, um, to Boris Johnson and, Mm. Keir Starmer and I I guess by extension to Scott Morrison and, and, and Anthony Albanese. And mm. that is um I'm I'm really fascinated, as you are, by by the difference between on the climate question for example between our two polities that is between uh, the british one and the australian one in mm-hmm. britain the tories uh, boris johnson has been very muscular about pursuing progressive climate change policies policies that would be that would seem to be radical in the australian context and yet they're being pursued by a conservative government um in Australia, of course, it's, it's the opposite. I mean, we've got sort of almost, you know, kind of gridlock. Uh, Labor had a pretty uh, ambitious 45% by 2030 target at the last election, but it seems to have even backed away from that mm-hmm. now, even as the world has, has kind of moved to that sort of place. W- what's going on in, in politics uh, in the UK that, as, as you said, I mean, Boris Johnson just won the Hartlepool by-election, which mm-hmm. was one of those red wall, Labour constituencies in the north that mm. hasn't fallen to the Tories for I don't mm. know, ever. But voted Brexit. Yeah, that's right. It voted mm. Brexit, and that's mm. actually the important point, isn't it? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um okay. Look, there's a there's a there's a there's a lot there. Um what I would say about um about climate action is that the the key difference between um the Conservative Party in the UK and uh uh, and the coalition is um, obviously the liberals are hamstrung by, by the nationals in terms of the approach to, to climate. Um, that's one um, Two, the, the conservative party in the UK have a, what's called a cosmopolitan agenda, an urban agenda. Right. Right. They don't have, uh, um, um, a, although it's a conservative party um, and obviously uh, one of the major um, changes in the sociology of the Conservative Party has been um, the movement from land and the ruling class owning land to, obviously, um, the, um, the urban economy and the focus on the urban economy. Um, and they did that, obviously, to ensure that they survived um, electorally. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, the Conservative Party, as you know, has always been a very pragmatic party. Um, so as soon as they, they saw that, that um, through the European Union, firstly, um, a greening of, of, of politics across Europe, and we were also seeing the greening of British industry, um, the greening of, of big business, and the development of a small liberal agenda in big business – then it was natural for them to embrace climate action. Um, I mean, Australia is the exception to the rule in this sense. Yeah. You know, that if, if you look at the, I don't know, if we looked at the top 200 Australian companies, right, my intuition would be that the majority of them would have small L liberal agendas, right, in terms of diverse. Yeah. You know, embracing a diverse workforce yeah. and all those sorts of yeah. things, but of course, the the big barrier is 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 the commodities industry, which of course still contributes very significantly to um, GDP, mm-hmm. um, less so to employment, as we know. That's been mm. a little bit of a overstated, um, a, generally a, a overst- speaking. Overst- overstated, but obviously, we have a coalition government that is kind of between the devil and the deep blue sea. Um, and has been risk-averse in making a making a big step one way or the other. The I mean, key question is whether Biden will drive them yeah. towards the small-L liberal um, agenda on certain issues. And we
1: know Boris Johnson made a, a telephone call to Scott Morrison just in the last few days mm. to again urge him towards a net zero by 2050 mm. commitment. Mm. Most people seem to think that there is some sort of commitment like that coming between now and when that uh, that uh, UN climate change conference happens in Glasgow in November. Mm. Um, so maybe there's some movement here, but it's been so reluctant. You know, you said, for example, that the Libs are hamstrung by the Nats and I think that's undoubtedly true. And we can't know this, of course, what I'm about to, to propose, but how different could that have been if the Libs had actually had a, a you know a front footed policy and been trying to bring the nationals along with them. What what well, of course co- what that's convincing could they have might done?
0: happen with Turnbull, didn't we? But of but of course in the in in the end his his thirst for power was greater than his thirst for achievement. Yeah? Um, in other words, he was willing to make the compromise to stay in power, but then, of course, he was
1: knifed in the in the back. It it proved to be the wrong gambit strategically. I, and I, th- I was just thinking last—I might write something about this—but I was just thinking the last day or two that. It's it's quite interesting that you look at that budget that the government just unveiled, and there's some you know there's a bit of sort of chatter and blowback in the conservative end of the Liberal Party now about not having you know about having just gargantuan debt and not having a a you know proper plan for it mm. uh, for paying it down, and how this is so different from the conservative you know mantra we've heard for a long time. Mm. And I was thinking, funnily enough. They got rid of Malcolm Turnbull because they thought he was too moderate. But I I don't think Malcolm Turnbull would have delivered that budget. No, he would have run the numbers.
0: Yeah, he he became a numbers man. Well, yeah, Um, but even if in terms of winning elections,
1: true. uh, But I think it's a it's a positive for them electorally, or at least it operates as not as a negative. But I but I just think Malcolm Turnbull one wouldn't have wanted to look that progressive uh, because of. How that would have played within mm. the coalition, and his you know he obviously had very much an eye to the party room, but also I think he was more economically conservative more economically let me put it another way more economically liberal uh, than um than was evidenced by that budget i mean that was the kind of pragmatism you talk about in yeah, the Tory yeah. party
0: yeah and and of course now now he's out of power. it's interesting to see what agendas he's jumping on
1: yeah um
0: I mean I talked about um independence can um they have a podcast series and um and turnbull um um does a podcast with them mm. um and he talks about his worries about um, australian democracy um and obviously he focuses in particularly on on um you know ownership and control of the media and and, and issues around that. Yeah. But he also talks about the importance of there being um, competitive elections and how independents are important in terms of competitive elections. Yeah. Um. So so he is he is sort of by stealth developing this sort of renewal um project, and he wants to now be seen as um as a poly, polymath um, reformist. Mm. Um. Um, out of power which is which is obviously interesting and for those of us who thought that he may be potentially a turning point um des- desperately disappointing well once I mean more, he, he was
1: on this podcast only probably a month ago now and right. uh, it was a very interesting discussion and if if you listen if you haven't heard it I I'd, I'd encourage yeah, no, you to listen be, to it yeah. but um you know one of the things he did concede and my my experience is, is that prime ministers former prime ministers and I've spoken to many of them pretty much never concede anything, you know, pretty well everything they did was mm. right. One of the things he did concede, I think, was, at least partially, was the the possibility, as I was putting it to him, that he should have gone to an election much sooner than he did. Mm-hmm. There was a great deal of optimism around yeah. when he replaced Abbott. Uh, he was very popular. It It took some time for it to, but not very long, for it to sort of start to become apparent that there had been what some have called a kind of a Faustian pact, you know, he'd agreed to park some of the things for which he was most Mm. known about, you know, um, his position on emissions trading, his position on the Republic, his position on Mm. same-sex marriage. All of these things were essentially, you know, proscribed from being accelerated. Whereas had he gone to an election relatively soon, he might not have ended up in that that very difficult situation that he did after the election in 2016 Mm. of having a one seat majority and yeah. and and all of the authority problems that that attended to that. That's right. Uh, and he might have been able to say to the right, "Well, look, I've won a thumping election win in my own right now, so you can all bugger off."
0: Yeah. <laughs> so we sort of seen the sort of courageous um, leader mm. um, with a with a, an active agenda. Uh, we saw the risk averse. Yeah, we leader. saw we,
1: we saw someone who was very conscious of his. Party because he'd lost the leadership once before, of course, in twenty oh nine, and he seemed to be almost. He remembered that. Yeah, he did. He remembered it. I think in a way, in a deeper way than many of us who were watching on at the time. Yeah. Perhaps appreciated. Now, look, we're getting uh, close to time, but I, I do want to get to uh, sort of Starmer yeah. and, and, to some extent, any similarities with with Albanese's dilemma. But, but wh- why why is it that Starmer isn't cutting through, in your view is it Is it just the incumbency factor during the crisis?
0: No, um,
1: Labour voters. He in hasn't
0: that- a- articulated a clear policy agenda, right? No. So when 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 Blair came to power, when Blair came to power. Um he very much looked at um what new Labour would need to look at in contrast to, to old Labour. Yeah. Right. Um and then of course um we had the dial back to, to, to old Labour under Jeremy Corbyn. Mm. Um and Starmer's problem is how he defines the Labour Party now in contrast to old Labour and to New Labour. Yeah. Right. So um so he's criticized really for um, for for not for not having a clear articulation of what the Labour Party stands for. And in the meantime, Johnson, right, has shifted towards a full employment uh, approach because of the very significant fiscal stimulus. Yeah. Very he similar ha- to here. Right? Yeah. And and he's he's obviously taken on the climate action um process very, very clearly. Um but he's also and this is this matters very much in terms of Hartlepool. Um, they've committed significantly to regional economic development, particularly in in the northeast and in those vulnerable constituencies. So Hartlepool has been um, a major gain of investment to the to the Tees Valley. Then you've got the success of the vaccine, mm-hmm. uh, the vaccine rollout, um, and then you've got um, the fact that actually there's been some trends here in this region for a while. There was a high Brexit vote um, in Hartlepool.
1: These um, are the people who kind of responded to, you know, um, uh, Dominic Cummings's uh, fantastic uh, political slogan in that in that in that referendum. Uh, that's right. Take back control. Yeah. yeah. So so you so you basically who sort of feel like they, Britain had drifted away from them, and they've, they've that's taken right. It back. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So so yeah. So so they've 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 connected much better with those that have been left behind by globalisation than Labour. Because Labour have been um, um, bogged down in this class and identity war um, uh, um, under Corbyn. So that's been a huge issue. And then the other thing is the media in the UK um, always downplay the popularity of, of Johnson. Right, mm, Yeah, it's good. Point, um, it? yeah. Now he, you know, internationally, he may look like a buffoon, but I tell you, if he was in this room now, I had a lot to do with um, Boris Johnson because um, I was on this. Um, I was, I was linked to Yorkshire forward. Um, which was a regional development agency, and um, he was the minister who was on Yorkshire for, right. focusing on, on the Hull area. And right. uh, so I was on this committee with him for a while. And I tell you, he was a very, very engaging man, yeah. very funny, yeah. very funny. Yeah. You couldn't help not like him. Mm. Um, his politics were very different in those days, I should say. They were a lot more sort of… Eclectic, um, weren't they? They were very eclectic. Yeah. Um,
1: but but um he, he is a he's a magnetic personality he in is that sense. He's a magnetic yeah.
0: personality. Yeah. Whereas Starmer again, um, and again, because of the work that I did on constitutional reform, I, I do know him. We've actually written some some pieces together. Um look, his his background is as a as a human rights activist. Um the chattering classes love Keir Starmer.
1: He's a he's a polished barrister. He's really.
0: very polished. Um and um, he was the biggest, probably one of the key influences on in the development of the British Bill of Rights, mm. right? Um, but a big internationalist, right? And it's Sir Keir Starmer. Yeah. You know, I, I'm just not sure that he, in identity politics terms, he connects up
1: um, with the
0: people of Harlepool.
1: What, 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 a, what a horrible irony, though, that the Labor, the Labor leader is having <laughs> trouble connecting with the sort of blue-collar workers because he's called among other things, because he's Sir Keir Starmer.
0: Yeah, and look, I think Albanese suffers from a related issue, which is that he is very much associated with traditional labour, with old labour politics, with union corruption or perceptions of union corruption.
1: Yeah, I suppose that's true. I I, I think, to be fair to him, he doesn't have a particular union background himself. No, he doesn't,
0: but he's perceived as that. I'm
1: not not saying that that is... uh,
0: um, uh, an accurate um, right. representation just, uh, yeah, of him, but certainly as you know, I do these focus groups. I do thirty-four focus groups all over Australia every single year, um, and the the big problem that they have had with Shorten and with Albanese is their their view to be politicians of the past and not of the future.
1: Yeah, interesting. Right? Yeah.
0: Um, and actually, look, the, you know, Turnbull was great at engaging with the chattering classes, but he wasn't good at enge- engaging with everyday Australians. This is you what know?
1: people used to say. They said, Turnbull was popul- popular with a whole lot of people who weren't actually going to vote Liberal.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so, look, the, the genius of the Conservative Party and, you know, events, dear boy, events have helped them, mm. is the way in which they flipped Traditional class politics on its head, yeah, right. And you're seeing in in the UK realignment around age, so your generation matters in terms of um, who you vote for, yeah. Um, education, right, um, and region, right. So we're seeing a realignment around those things, and uh, and
1: Boris Johnson's benefited from that. It's an extraordinary situation. Mark, I could talk to you all day, seriously. Mm. I, perhaps after we turn off the microphone, we will talk all day. Uh, and, and I think, you know, it just occurs to me, we, we might revisit that piece that we wrote a year ago and yeah. uh, and, no, uh, and sort of, uh, you know, kind of, I guess, gauge where we are up to. Mm. Um, it's probably not a bad idea. Thanks so much for coming in and being on Democracy oh, it's Sausage. It's a pleasure it's,
0: talking to you as always, Mark. been
1: terrific having you on. That's it for this week. Uh, you can, of course, contact us uh, on uh, on Twitter at Apps Policy Forum. That's APPS Policy Forum and by email. Uh, and you can find the um, Facebook page if you type in Policy Forum Pod into the search bar. Uh, so until next week, uh, thanks for being with us and we'll talk to you then.